welcome to Logos. In this kind of emergency episode, I am very intrigued to be able to invite Dr. Paul Marek to give a brief but compounding introduction to his work. He is the second most published critical care physician in the world with over 500 peer-reviewed journal articles, 80 book chapters and four critical care books written. He was cited over 43,000 times in peer-reviewed publications and is a renowned expert in the management of obsessives while having scientific training in numerous fields, all into the kind of relation to what we are going to talk about. He is a founding member of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance and has co-authored 10 papers of many therapeutic aspects of COVID-19. The FLCCC was founded in March 2020 with the aim of developing life-saving protocols for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. They have worked out a protocol called MHT or MATH Plus in um, the same month and have recently published the iMask Plus protocol. So today I would like to assess the general topic of this disease but with special focus on the treatment. So perhaps to jump right into the uh, hottest topic, why in your estimation is the general public here in, or let's say whether the official guidelines not on the right path and what is your opinion on how we can treat COVID. Okay. Well, thank you, Sebastian, for inviting me to talk today. And this is a really important topic. So we formed the FLCC because there was a global failure. There was a failure of the medical establishment across the world to develop a strategy for the treatment of COVID. A complete failure. And their strategy now has been focused on vaccination rather than treating patients. And this, this has led to the unequivocal death of hundreds of thousands of patients. The initial treatment strategy was supportive care. So when the initial outbreak in Italy, in New York City, in Detroit, on the west coast of the US, the official treatment by the WHO the NIH, the CDC, and every other medical organization across the globe was supportive care. Supportive care is no care. It means just give oxygen and fluids. And we soon realized that was ridiculous. I mean, I think any clinician looking after a critically ill patient would recognize that that is a dereliction of the duty of a physician. You do what you have to do. So we, we recognized very early, this was in March of April of 2020, that there were two major components of patients with severe COVID. The first was inflammation. There's no question patients develop severe inflammation. We now know why that happens. There are certain cells in the lungs called macrophages 
these cells get activated by spike protein and SARS-CoV-2 RNA and produce enormous quantities of inflammatory mediators. So you have inflammation. The second problem is clotting. You have clotting at multiple levels. So that's why starting in April of last year, we recommended the use of corticosteroids to treat inflammation and heparin for the clotting. We need to note at that time the WHO recommended do not use steroids. The WHO said not, do not use steroids, and that was based on um, a misunderstanding of the disease and the literature. It was only after the recovery study, which was published maybe in June, that actually showed a benefit of corticosteroids that the WHO reversed their guideline. Okay, um, this is, sorry to interrupt you, but there I myself kind of start losing the where the scientific process has gone wrong. You've mentioned in the beginning that this was mishandled, but why would, which is in many eyes the highest scientific um, outlet, completely mess this up while you are aware of what actually is going on? Yeah, so you ask a question which is very difficult to answer. It's unfathomable, and it continues to this day. And I think the goal right from the beginning, and this may sound like a conspiracy theory, the goal right from the beginning was to promote the use of vaccines and expensive designer molecules. The, the goal was not to promote cheap repurposed drugs which are safe, readily available across the world and effective for treating this disease. And there's no question this is the hand of Big Pharma. They were promoting expensive drugs and vaccination. And you can look at remdesivir. So remdesivir is, and steroids are the only two drugs approved by the NIH. Remdesivir costs a course of between three and four thousand dollars a patient, three to four thousand dollars a patient, and has not been shown to reduce the risk of death. All it does is it increases the bank balance of the big pharma, and there are profound conflicts of interest between the WHO, the NIH, the CDC, and big pharma. So this reflects the interests of big pharma and making money at the expense of people's death. So, you know, the most vulnerable organ in the body is the back pocket, the wallet. When the wallet gets threatened, people will do whatever they can do to preserve their economic interests. So I think this, to a large extent, explains what's happened because there's been a complete dismissal of safe, cheap, repurposed drugs. We can just look at vitamin D. Vitamin D, no one, no one has any political game with vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency plays a very important role in getting COVID and dying from COVID. It's just so simple to give people vitamin D, particularly elderly people, particularly people in long-term care facilities, 
just give them vitamin D. We know that Dr. Fauci takes vitamin D himself, personally, but yet he will not recommend it because it's cheap and it's safe. Um, so that's just one example. Then there's obviously the eye drug. It's a drug which begins with the word eye, but I'm not allowed to mention its name because I, I will be banned. And we know this is the most effective drug to treat COVID-19. Maybe I should say that again. The eye drug, which is safe, cheap, we have experience of 25 to 30 years, it is profoundly safe, is the most effective drug to treat COVID-19. And how do I know this? Well, Dr. Andrew Hill published a meta-analysis three days ago looking at the benefits of the eye drug in patients with COVID-19. What did he show? It decreases the symptomatic time. So people who take the eye drug are symptomatic for a shorter period of time. They shed the virus for a shorter period of time, i.e. are less infectious, and it reduced mortality by 56%. Let me say that again. The eye drug reduced the risk of dying from COVID by 56%. The accompanying editorial, and this is not me, this is from the MassGen, the editorial has said, based on this data, it is the most effective drug for the treatment of SARS-CoV-2. Just because the effect was so dramatic in a reasonably small cohort of patient, which points to the enormous power of this drug. And the eye drug is very effective for prophylaxis. So there are studies done in South America, particularly Argentina, showing that if healthcare workers or close contacts take the eye drug, will significantly reduce the risk of getting COVID. We know in the early treatment of SARS-CoV-2, if you treat patients with the eye drug, it prevents hospitalization and death. Currently, the strategy of the NIH and the CDC is that if you have COVID, you don't treat patients, you stay at home. The recommendation of the NIH is no treatment. You stay at home until you go blue and cannot breathe. Let me say that again. The NIH and WHO do not recommend early any early treatment for COVID infection. What they say is you stay home, you take symptomatic treatment, and you wait until you cannot breathe. Then when you cannot breathe and are going to die, you go to hospital. It's an outrage. So what I'm telling you is we have effective therapy for the prevention. We have effective therapy for the early treatment. We have effective therapy for hospitalized patients with COVID. Yet, this information has been, there's been enormous disinformation, misinformation, because the powers that be do not want to tell the world, people, patients, and doctors about effective therapies. So that's why the FLCCC put together these protocols. So we now have a whole host of protocols which cover the entire spectrum from prophylaxis to early treatment to late treatment to the treatment of the post-COVID syndrome. 
So, you know, we fill the gap because the major healthcare organizations across the world have failed. They have miserably failed in their duty to provide effective therapy for people who have COVID. I hope that answers your question. Well, um, when you talk about the eye drug being the most effective drug here, the I think general consensus will rather be that, of course, while treatment is useful um, and given the perspective that one may um, be critical of this being prophylactic, why, what bothers you when it comes to vaccination? So I'm not anti-vaccination. I myself have been vaccinated. So I just want to make that point clear. But I think in medicine, what we always do, the surgeons do it, the obstetricians do it, every single physician does, they, they do a risk-benefit assessment. Before they treat a patient with treatment X, they assess the risks and versus the benefits. That's just the way we work. And most patients want to know, What are the risks of this treatment versus the benefit? Part of the problem is there's been complete lack of transparency. The uh, vaccine producers and most governments have not been open and honest telling us how these vaccines work. As a clinician, I do not understand fully how they work because that information has been withheld from the medical community. Secondly, The complications associated with vaccines have not been revealed. So unfortunately, the general population don't know who to believe and they don't know where to get the information. And I think you have to be open, honest, and truthful. Let people make the decisions for themselves. They're not stupid, but you have to give them the information. So going back to the question, I think that What we know is that, you know, COVID is a serious disease. Let's just state that up front. There are ridiculous people who think this is a mild disease. This is the flu. That is a complete and utter lie. Let me say that again. That is a lie. This is a serious disease. People die from this disease. They die from COVID. We know that 20 to 30% of people who get COVID will develop the post-COVID syndrome. This is a serious disease. Influenza does not cause such a disease. So COVID is a very serious disease, which has to be taken very seriously. So with that background, when you look at people who die, most of the deaths from COVID are in people over the age of 60. And those who have comorbidities, particularly obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So I think if you look at a risk-benefit ratio, that I think it makes sense to use the safest vaccine we have in high-risk people. However, kids below the age of 18 rarely get symptom serious disease and rarely die. And yet it seems that the complications from the vaccine highest in the younger population. So I think common sense would tell you that you have to do a risk-benefit analysis. 
and that, you know, elderly people who have comorbidities, I think they benefit from the vaccine. You know, young people who otherwise healthy, you know, I don't think there's enough data to prove that they benefit. Secondly, this fantasy of achieving herd immunity is never going to happen. It's never going to happen for multiple reasons. And the longer we perpetuate this pandemic, we could have controlled this pandemic last year. But the longer we allow to fester, the more variants we're going to have. That's what viruses do. They mutate to improve their virulence so they can spread. The more widespread the disease is, the more variants we're going to have, the more the disease is going to spread. And then these variants are going to be less susceptible to the vaccination. So it's been a complete and utter disaster, complete disaster. And I think it's because of the lack of transparency, lack of honesty and censorship. So I'm not allowed to say certain words because the censor gods think that I'm promoting misinformation, which is truly astonishing because we have no vested interest. Our interest is to help society, help humanity and promote the truth. Yet we are being accused of promoting medical misinformation. So I think it's highlighted because I can't say the I word, yet the paper that from Dr. Andrew Hill proves beyond any shadow of doubt that this is the most effective drug to treat COVID, yet we can't talk about it because it's being censored. So why is it being censored, you may ask? So the number of reasons. One of them is the emergency use authorization, the EUA for all the vaccines is predicated on the basis that there is no effective alternative therapy. If you look at the FDA guidelines and the FDA document, it clearly states the EUA is, can only be enforced if there is no effective alternative therapy. If the WHO and the NIH were to say that the eye drug was an effective drug, then the EUA for all the vaccines would be null and void and vaccines could not be used. So there is enormous financial and economic incentives to provide mistruths and misinformation about drugs which threaten the economic viability of the vaccines. And I'm not anti-vaccine. You know, I think one has to speak the truth. You have to stop all the censorship because, you know, you let people speak. You know, sci that's the way science works. People communicate with each other. Scientists communicate with each other. And science is self-correcting. But you have to allow communication. Once you start censoring clinicians and scientists, it results in a single agenda a single concept which gets propagated. Okay, from from the perspective of censorship, if, if you're good-hearted, you would assume that the idea behind this is not to allow people that twist facts not 
in a scientific process, but to model the perspective that would benefit them. It appears now that the opposite is the case and that rather those who are committed to um, the, this idea that they are the truth tellers and everything that disagrees with them is wrong, that they are the ones that actually are um, active in the censorship. And given that one trusts the scientific process, there wouldn't be any reason to fear the opinions of, of people like you when they are confident that their facts are superior. So what, what I still can't get into my mind, either there is a gigantic bubble of ignorance and people have just gone, risen into positions of power without any competence, or there is truly a kind of malevolence present in which I am, well, which is quite uh, frightening given that this kind of treatment to be uh, spread, of course, ha requires this kind of public process. So how would you say, given the current situation, that probably will not immediately change what is the best way to uh, well get the past mistakes out of the way and act as quickly as possible to end this yeah, so i agree with your assessment absolutely completely and categorically so there are people who are censoring us who have a vested interest they have an agenda and these are people who don't understand the science i mean these are people who do not understand what they're censoring and they have an agenda. So it's, it's unfathomable. And so, you know, we, we had tried to go through official routes to the CDC, the NIH, the WHO. That just is not going to work. So the only way this is going to change is for people like you to spread the word amongst people. It has to be a grounds up groundswell where people understand how they're being misled and they have to force we've tried unsuccessfully we have to now work from not at, at you know we thought we would go for a top-down approach where we approach the NIH and the CDC they're not interested in what we have to say so there has to be a, a population uprising where people are so outraged so outraged by what is happening that they express their complete and utter disgust with the WHO, the NIH, the CDC, because these organizations do not have the interests of humanity at, their, at heart. There's no question. So I think the only way this is going to change is for brave people like you who can spread the word that indeed this is the real truth. This is not the fabricated truth or the story that me, the mainstream media and the organizations want to tell you this is the real truth and if people want to they can ex they can explore for themselves what the truth really is um it's an outrage that we're being censored i mean it's 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 truly astonishing is that uh, the democracy is at stake free speech is at stake um, the truth is at stake because these people are 
manipulating the truth for their own self-serving interest. And the only way this is going to change is if the general population recognize what's happening and cause a groundswell. Because otherwise, the, the WHO, the NIH, the CDC will not change their very, their very evil ways. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there are as well, if you go and explore this field, especially the, the overwhelming message of many uh, physicians on the ground that are actually, um, if they're not prohibited by their overlords uh, or any superior positions, that do uh, are very successful with these kind of protocols. And yeah, perhaps that way, um, indeed, a solution is possible. Yeah, so you know, you make some really good points. And the problem is most doctors are scared. So they just follow blindly. They're like lemmings. They just do what they're told to do, which goes completely against the fabric of medicine the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do the best for the patient in front of you, to evaluate the patient, to evaluate the treatments, and not to follow blindly like sheep or lemmings. But many doctors are intimidated. They're fearful of the medical establishment. So they just follow blindly. So that's why people, you know, doctors have a hard time. I think we need a population uprising just because the um, the agenda of the major healthcare organizations across the entire world is completely against doing what's good for humanity. Well, and that's what I think is particularly the point where many people just part, especially if you're in the medical field, because if you would accept this as a truth, then, yeah, your, your worldview has to greatly shift because given that um, that's kind of the, the ultimate um, fist to the face you can have from uh, distrusting public services, um, I think especially this kind of has maybe, as you said, um, gathered in the broader public with the idea of a uh, actual, not natural outbreak, but laboratory leak. Um, would you say this is likely or what's your idea on that? Yeah, so you asked some really good questions. And I think the, the whole question of a lab leak um, and the way it was covered up is a is an example of the effect of the of the actions of the healthcare authorities to suppress the truth. So we'll never know the the real truth because the evidence has likely been destroyed. But the preponderance of evidence. So you know, if you were if this was a legal case and you were presenting this to a jury, the preponderance of evidence strongly suggests that the origin of SARS-CoV-2 was from the Wuhan Institute of Technology in Wuhan. The outbreak started in Wuhan. 
We know they were working on gain-of-function coronaviruses in the lab. We know the lab had been cited for biohazard and security issues, yet the level of biosecurity was not appropriate. The likelihood that the, the virus came from Wuhan is the the, from the lab in Wuhan is highly likely, highly likely. We know that prior to the major outbreak, there were four workers who worked in that lab who came down with a flu-like illness. I think the evidence is highly likely that this virus came from that institute. Yet the WHO, the NIH, and everyone else has done whatever they can to suppress that, that uh, possibility and to counter it with fake information. So the other alternative is that it came through an intermediate host, much like SARS or MERS. In the 18 months since the outbreak, they have been unable, they have been unable to, to find an intermediate host. So I think the likelihood that this was a natural infection through and from a bat to an intermediate host to humans is most unlikely. Dr. Fauci knows this, and yet he will not admit this. You know, his emails were obtained from the Information of Freedom Act, and it's that it was highly redacted. You only redact something when you want to hide information. So the likelihood is that he knew last February about this possible lab leak, yet he's denied it. The WHO has denied it. So once you, you know, I think the facts are pretty strong now. This was likely a lab leak, and it's been denied. The truth has not been told. So if they have not told you us the truth about where it came from, what else have they not told us the truth about? You have to wonder the question. If they've been dishonest about where the virus came from, what other misinformation and lies have they told us? And I'm sure it doesn't just stop with where this virus came from. Yeah, well, that's, um, of course, as well part of what we've been talking about when it comes to the treatment opportunities. And... One thing you mentioned earlier, what I believe it's very important to uh, specify, you were talking about that more variants are emerging the longer this is going on and that the, well, the vaccines we have currently will get less effective on them. Um, why would I think be different here? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. The pharmaceutical company is not... They're not upset about the variants because in a way it improves their business because then they have to make booster vaccines, which will then have to sell. So they actually, I can't say this, they're probably delighted by the variants because mm. all it does, it means is that they can sell more vaccines. In terms of the eye drug, we know from laboratory data that the eye drug is effective against the Wuhan variant and all the other variants. So the likelihood is that the eye drug will be effective and is effective against the original virus as well as the variants. Sure. Well, that's quite difficult to 
into the future to um, predict this. But of course, given that um, I is not only specifically developed for um, one variant, it would be highly likely that it as well fits others. Yeah, so you ask a really very good question. So the eye drug has activity against a whole bunch of viruses. It's not just SARS-CoV-2. So it has broad spectrum antiviral properties. We know it works against the Zika virus. We know it works against the HIV virus. We know that it probably works against the HIV virus. So this is a drug which has broad spectrum antiviral activity. So the likelihood of resistance emerging would appear to be very low. But it's, of course, well, that, that would imply, um, coming again to the safety of I, that this has been utilized in numerous, not only one instance, but different settings and locations and diseases. Why even then uh, wouldn't you just say from a public perspective, okay, even if we don't have enough data here, this is incredibly dangerous. And if this is not a, if this has no severe side effects we know of, because we've used this before, then I would believe the standard idea is just to try it. So absolutely. I mean, Sebastian, you asked the most, you know, difficult question to answer. And obviously you picked it up. Just common sense would dictate that this is an exceedingly safe drug. And we know it's safe because more than 3.7 billion, that's a B, 3.7 billion doses have been given across the world in the last 30 years. It is an extremely safe drug. We know it is an exceedingly cheap drug. So then the question becomes, even if we're not 100% certain of its efficacy, in the setting of a pandemic, what do you actually have to lose? Just give it to people and see what happens. And indeed, that is what has happened in a number of localities. So in Mexico City, in Peru, in some states in India, they've done mass distribution of the eye drug. And what's happened? The rates of COVID went down, the rates of hospitalization went down, and the rates of death went down. So it's not a mystery. Just do it. But as I said, there's strong economic and political motives to prevent this happening and to prevent the truth. That sounds um, very encouraging I believe from my understanding, and maybe we could go a bit more into the treatment protocols because they, of course, can consist of more than I. But, but returning to uh, this specific drug, I've heard the criticism of the dose being far in, in different quantities than previously utilized, and this being uh, dangerous. So why would you choose a higher dose now? So you asked two really important questions, and they're two very false narratives which are being perpetuated. Two very false narratives. The first one is that the levels that can be achieved in the blood are not adequate to kill the virus. 
So they say that you need to achieve levels 35 times what you can achieve in the blood. Now, that's based on a study in monkey kidney cells, okay? This was a study in monkey kidney cells, okay? Subsequently, the study has been repeated in human lung cells and shown that the concentration you can achieve to kill the virus in lung cells is significantly lower than the concentration you need in monkey kidney cells. Okay, it's really important. This is a false narrative by people who do not want to believe the drug works. It's quite simple that they will go to whatever measures to try and provide misleading and false information. So we know this drug has antiviral properties. We know that the levels which you achieve in the lung are more than adequate to kill the virus. We know this. The lung accumulates in the lung, the drug accumulates in the lung in very high concentrations. So it can achieve high concentrations in the lung. And those concentrations are more than adequate to kill the virus. But people are, the, the detractors continue to promote this misinformation on purpose and by design to try and suggest the drug cannot work. This is false. Secondly, the dose we recommend is now is 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. That is a very safe drug. Doses have been given 10 times that dose and are proven to be very safe. Studies have been done using up to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. And we know the drug is very safe. So this idea that you need exceedingly high levels, is high, high doses is false. And that the doses we, we suggest, and it's a slightly higher dose, 0.4 to 0.6, is exceedingly safe. There's no data that this drug has any serious side effects. Very well. So from from the perspective of an individual, um, I believe uh, we may be could um, make a distinction from those who are uh, in need of uh, hospitalization in serious disease, but perhaps first dive into what prophylactic measures one can take apart from I, because of course there are, first of all, other um, drugs and supplements that may be useful, but as well maybe, uh, which is for some reason that is as absurd as everything we've talked about, extremely understated, uh, simple lifestyle choices. Yeah, so you, you make some very good points. So, you know, we mentioned vitamin D. I think there's no question of doubt that vitamin D deficiency increases your risk of getting COVID, of being hospitalized with COVID and dying of COVID. And we know that elderly people, we know that people, African-American people or, or people who, who uh, uh, have dark skin are much higher risk of vitamin D deficiency. Elderly people are at higher risk, obese people, people who spend mainly indoors, People in north of 40 degrees latitude, so much of Europe, are vitamin D deficient. So taking vitamin D is a very simple intervention. 
And it's astonishing to me that Dr. Fauci himself has publicly admitted he takes vitamin D, yet the NIH will not recommend vitamin D. It's an outrage. It's a very simple intervention. And if there's any question of doubt, people can go to their physicians and they can measure their vitamin D levels. If their vitamin D levels are subnormal, they should take vitamin D. The next supplement is melatonin. So I'm not sure if it's available over the counter in Europe. Some countries it is. In the U.S. it's available over the counter. Melatonin is a very effective drug for the prevention and treatment of COVID. It is an exceedingly safe drug. Exceedingly safe. So there's really no reason that people shouldn't take melatonin. The next one is a plant phytochemical. It's a chemical found in fruits and vegetables called quercetin. Quercetin has anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and immune-modulating properties. We've always suspected that quercetin may be valuable for treating and preventing SARS-CoV-2. A paper recently was print published, a randomized controlled trial demonstrating that with patients who have early COVID, quercetin reduces their risk of hospitalization and death. Vitamin C is another drug which probably works together with quercetin. It's a very safe drug. It's cheap. It enhances the absorption of quercetin. So there are lots of things people can do to improve their immune status and to reduce their risk. And there are obviously social things people can do. So, you know, obviously things have changed now depending on whether people are vaccinated or not. But if, you know, this idea previously where people would congregate in large groups, um, people who are unvaccinated, was obviously a recipe for spreading the virus. This is spread by droplet and aerosol spread. We need to be clear. This is a respiratory pathogen. It's spread by droplets and aerosol. So you inhale it. This idea of hand washing is absurd. That, the, that it is not spread by touching objects. It's spread by droplets and inhalation. So if you have a large group of people together and somebody is sick, this is a highly contagious virus and it will spread. So I think, you know, these large gatherings of people was clearly inappropriate. This doesn't mean that people need to socially isolate because I think I, social isolation and not having contact with other human beings is a really bad thing. You know, humans are social beings. They need to interact. So one has to achieve some kind of a balance. And I do believe masks work in the right setting. Masks don't work outdoors. It's a, it's a silly concept to wear a mask outdoors. Masks should be worn indoors when there's a high concentration of people in close contact. And we know masks work because during the last flu epidemic in winter, flu disappeared. Flu disappeared. The cases of influenza reached the lowest levels ever recorded. Why did that happen? Because people were wearing masks and preventing its transmission.
so I think there's a place for masks. There's a place for social distancing, but there's no place for social isolation. People should not be isolated. So there are general common sense public health measures people can undertake to reduce their risk of getting SARS-CoV-2. And most importantly, as I said before, this is a serious disease. People die from COVID. So this, this false narrative, and there are many people spreading this false rumor that there is really not a pandemic. It was a made-up pandemic. People aren't dying. is completely false. It's a really serious disease. We needed to attack it aggressively really early on. But we have failed. Humanity has failed, and it's resulted in this terrible disaster. So there are things that individual people can do to reduce their risk of getting COVID. And that message has not been propagated by the healthcare authorities. I mean, they just have not done that because there are specific interventions that people can do to prevent transmission of this disease. The other thing we recommend in people who actually have SARS-CoV-2. So when you have an infection, it's really important that day one, the day you develop fever, malaise, the general features of a flu-like illness, you, you start treatment. The other thing you can do is what we call oropharyngeal sanitization because the virus replicates in your upper airway and mouth. You can take, you can gargle with antiviral medications, just simple gargle with a mouthwash, an antiviral mouthwash with aromatic oils to try and kill the virus locally. So I think one needs a multifaceted strategy to prevent the disease if you have it to treat it early to prevent dissemination of the disease. Well, that's a lot of information, but um, dissected. I believe for different stages of people, um, yeah, this will be a very useful in application. Um, so, you know, what, I, what you say is a really good point. So that's what we did. We've actually, if you go to our website, flccc.net, flccc.net, we broke it down into protocols for the different stages. You know, what you can do to prevent getting COVID what you can do for the early treatment of COVID, what we recommend for the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID, and what you can do for the post-COVID syndrome. So we've kind of broken it down into pieces that people can understand depending on, you know, where they are in the spectrum of COVID. Definitely. And as well, I... I believe it's very beneficial to make a precise distinction that it doesn't mean when you don't agree with everything that the public outlets publish, um, you're immediately a COVID denier and completely um, destroy the actual system that's in place so we can return to normality. 
Yeah, you, you make some very, very, very good points. And the last one is a very, very good point. We should be able to have, we don't need to all agree. And we don't all agree, but at least we can have a conversation. We can talk about it. We can discuss it. We can exchange information. That's what separates humans from monkeys, is we have the ability to communicate with each other. Maybe monkeys communicate better than we do, but we can communicate with each other. We can exchange ideas. We can discuss issues, and we may not agree on everything, but that's the basis on which civilization is based. That's what progress is based on. That's what science is, is the exchange of information between people. And once you start censoring, then you create enormous amount of misinformation and people just don't know who to believe. Definitely. So to kind of um, maybe for someone who now aims not only to perhaps improve one's, um, well, <laughs> success rate of surviving, um, but as well wants to make a broader impact in achieving what you've talked about in informing others and finally extinguishing um, this disease that is um, kind of not only ruining lives, but of course, from a um, more economical picture, as well, the capitalist basis of uh, how our societies function. So uh, to, to boil it down, um, what ways would you recommend for someone individually to um, make the things outside of one's uh, private life better. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think people need to be empowered. They need to have access to the truth. And I think, you know, that has become difficult because um, the major social outlets, social media are, as we said, censoring the information. So it's difficult for people to actually acquire that information. But I think there are ways people could do it. You know, our website does provide information. People can read it. They can look for other sources. So I think the most important is to understand we're living in unprecedented times where there is enormous censorship. There's no question of doubt. Nobody can deny we're being censored. So I think the general people need to recognize we're being censored and therefore try and obtain the best information they can and then make a decision for themselves. Um, it, is a, it is a travesty that there is all of, that there is the censorship. So it is somewhat difficult for people to obtain this information. And social media has done a good job of censoring information. But I think despite that, people can find the information and they should do whatever they can to obtain that information and then decide for themselves. And obviously, they should then, you know, once they have this information, they should speak to their friends, their colleagues, their family members. And obviously, the um, their representatives who, rep, you know, represent them in government, you know, they shouldn't be quiet. So I think it's, you know, we need a, 
uprising from the bottom up where people get informed, where people can be educated and people can help spread the word. Definitely. I would be very grateful to, for once, see a, a demonstration against Corona measurements where people actually wear masks. Um, so these kind of what, how the public has always thought against perhaps um, tyrannical tendencies is precisely our voice. And this is what we can't, yeah, let um, be taken from us. So, and I believe this definitely we cry is a kind of strengthened integrity. So the best way to achieve this kind of confidence in what you uh, actually believe is to study this, not base your soul, base your information solely on a podcast like this, but actually try to weed into where this information comes from and look at this different perspectives for what you seem fit. After all, that's the fundament of our humanity to, as you said, uh, be have discourse beyond screaming at each other as monkeys do and thus uh, trust yourself that you can actually find uh, the truth yourself. To, yeah. uh, to finish this up as well, uh, th this strength is required to resist kind of social urges or, um, well, fight against, for example, of course, while it's not... Uh, the fundamental idea that vaccination is wrong, but you shouldn't get vaccinated just because you deem a vaccine lottery or um, certain passports fit. That's, I believe, the line where you ought to fight back. No, I agree with everything that you've said. I think that people need to be informed They need to have access to information. They need to decide for themselves because it's their bodies. They're being vaccinated. They're taking whatever medications. And what we need to do is, is allow people access to the information. And they shouldn't believe anybody. They should evaluate the information for themselves. Then come to some kind of, you know, an assessment. You know, I don't think people should blindly follow anybody. They should think about it themselves. They should review the information themselves. And they should think what makes sense. What makes sense? And I think, you know, if you think about the lab leak story, you know, if you evaluate the data, I think anyone with any kind of common sense will say, hey, you know what? The most likely scenario was this came from a lab. That's not conspiracy theory. That's just fact and common sense. And I think people have lost the ability to think and the ability to judge things and figure out what, what makes sense. Yeah, and that's, I, I would completely agree with that, not even as a personal attack to people, but it appears and it's kind of coherent with uh, what I like to apply here, a kind of evolutionary view that in a case of the spread of fear and anxiety with paired with things like social isolation and uh, this 
harsh uncertainty that, well, a kind of instinctive, uh, instinctively the faculty of reason shuts off and leaves part to immediate action, how you would simply survive, um, which perhaps is not the best way to live through this. So um, to wrap this up, um, thank you very much for coming on and sharing this information. I hope this will be of great usage and people listen and will apply and um, will return to a safer world. And I want to thank you um, for our discussion we had today because it was a discussion. We were talking with each other, we were exchanging information, and you actually are remarkably, your questions were remarkably astute, and I want to thank you because I think you've obviously thought about it, you can understand the issues, and I think that's what we all need to do, and engage in a conversation, just like the conversation we've had today. So I want to thank you.